New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guest today, Dr. Margaret Wheatley, observes, We cannot live in this world without a commonly shared sense of what is important, what is of value, what is real. She also shares the profound understanding that what distinguishes living systems from machines is their ability to learn. A healthy living system is a good learner and can thrive even though the environment is moving toward increasing disorder. So the importance of a shared sense of what is of value and lifelong learning in disorderly times are several of the many topics we'll be exploring today with our guest, Dr. Margaret Wheatley. Dr. Margaret Wheatley, affectionately known as Meg, is an internationally acclaimed writer, speaker, and teacher she began caring about the world's people in 1966 as a Peace Corps volunteer in post-war Korea. She is co-founder and president emerita of the Burkana Institute, a charitable foundation that works with people around the world who strengthen their communities using the wisdom and wealth already present in their people. She's the most effective guide in creating islands of sanity in the midst of wildly disruptive times. And is the author of 10 books, including Leadership in the New Science, How Does the Raven Know? And Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. Join us for the next hour as we explore how to be Warriors for the Human Spirit in These Chaotic Times with our guest, Dr. Margaret Wheatley. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Meg, welcome. Well, it's wonderful to be back with you, Justine. I'm sitting here remembering the last time I was interviewed by Michael, and it's very moving for me to now be with you again. Oh, yes, thank you. Yes, you've been a guest many times, and it's just wonderful to be with you once more. And I want to jump right in because you, I know that you in your book have talked about cycles of complex civilizations throughout history. And these cycles seem to come, you know, every 10 generations, and they repeat themselves over and over and over again. And so, each cycle ends with some kind of collapse. So I'm wondering if you can describe these cycles and 
and also answer the question, can we bypass the fate of other civilizations? Oh, what a wonderful question. I'm a history student uh, by training as one of my multiple things that I've explored in my life. And I became fascinated with the cycles that civilizations go through. It's a natural life cycle. And every living system goes through a life cycle. Birth, creativity, flowering, harvesting, and then death. So it was no surprise to me to realize that every civilization goes through this life cycle. What was shocking to me was how replicable the pattern is, how even specific behaviors occur and reoccur in every civilization. Two of the ones that really stunned me were that over time, the the general pattern is, you know, you start with high ideals, with self-sacrifice, with duty on our country, just as we've observed in the eulogies for Senator McCain and President Bush, and we call them the greatest generation, yes, because they had these values that are at the heart of the beginning of every civilization, sacrifice, putting service over self. And then the civilization becomes uh, stable, it becomes materialistic because business becomes the, the major profit motive everywhere. Every civilization, business takes over. And once business takes over, you get materialism, you get greed, you get self-interest. And you cited the work of what is Sir John Glubb's definition that there are 10 generations. Each generation profits from the benefits created by the former generation, and those those benefits are materialistic. They lead to consumerism. They lead to narcissism. We think we're unique in this time of being overwhelmed by consumerism, materialism, global capitalism, uh, and the pattern is like this every time. So some of the striking details of the pattern is the civilization moves from service through self-interest to decadence, and that's the final stage in Glove's work, the age of decadence. So in the age of decadence, the civilization, the culture, worships actors, musicians, and sports heroes, every single civilization. So battles are fought in, in... sports stadiums, in Byzantium, uh, in in Aztec culture. Um, actors and musicians are worshipped. And <laughs> it was just stunning when President Obama awarded his final medals of freedom. The New York Times reported that he awarded them to sports heroes, actors, and musicians. He also, to his credit, honored a few scientists, but that's what the New York Times reported. And I just went, it's like a checklist, you know, there we are. (laughs) One of the other parts of the pattern that was uh, notable was how education shifts in every civilization from 
from the acquiring of wisdom, the studying of the larger topics of philosophy and history, it becomes all the academic centers of learning. And now I'm going back to 861 in Baghdad for this reference. The centers of learning become places where uh, people just want to study what will give them the technical know-how to have good jobs. So what's so shocking about this, Justine, is like, you know, we think we're so different. So your question about can we can we get out of this? Well, we could have. That's what I found in reading extensively in the history of civilizations is every author wants us to take notice so we get smart so we don't repeat the pattern because this is where the whole notion of learning and adaptation comes in. Every other living system would notice what the environment has become and would adapt their behavior. And here we are, front and center, with our incredible levels of arrogance, denying those most recent devastating reports on climate, giving us only three years to really get it together. And uh, we're just pursuing our great self-interest, our narcissism, our arrogance, and this is why civilizations collapse at the end. We are not an adaptive species, and therefore we're the most endangered of all species. But for me, it's so important that we understand where we are in the pattern of collapse, not to throw up our hands in despair, which is part of it, the acceptance. I have despair frequently. But to understand that the title of my book, Who Do I Choose to Be Now?, now this is happening. Who do I choose to be? I'm reminded when you mentioned uh, Senator McCain, his recent passing, and it's I'm reminded of when you were once invited to be a scout for the Army, uh, for the Army Chief of Staff General Gordon R. Sullivan, and you got to know the military and you learned about the dedication and service. Well, I had this great moment when I was sitting after watching actually a mock tank battle at Fort Irwin in the desert of California, and I was aware that after every event, the Army had this process called after-action review, and everyone who was engaged in what happened, in this case it was either getting killed or being victorious in battle, They would gather together all the men, everyone, regardless of rank, and and learn from their experience by soliciting different perceptions and different comments of different understandings of what just happened. So after I watched that, I was sitting with a colonel having coffee, and I said, this is the only learning organization I've ever been in, truly. And Peter Senge had the same response when he went into the Army and saw this incredible process of learning. And so the colonel was pleased that I was giving credit, but he he said, Meg, we figured this one out a long time ago. It's better to learn than be dead. And I have (laughs) taken that imperative 
And and for years, I feel I've pleaded with organizational leaders, could you please reintroduce learning into this team, into this organization? Because when living systems don't learn, they die. And that's where we are right now. Our failure to learn is is our greatest our greatest uh, tragedy. Well, it's true enough. Uh, we'll talk more about that, and I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Margaret Wheatley, and she's the author of "Who Do We Choose to Be: Facing Reality." Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, Margaret Wheatley, W-H-E-A-T-L-E-Y, MargaretWheatley.com. And know that on her website, there are what, so many resources available. Margaret, can you say something about the resources on the website? Well, I set up my website for people who are curious and want to learn. Uh, so it has lots of resources, including my favorite videos that I think demonstrate capacities of the human spirit or deal well with issues. It has all my articles. It has my poetry. It has a lot of different things on it, little glimpses from my DVDs, and I designed it so that people would have it as a resource because we're those of us who are curious and interested. We need to keep learning about how how things work and what's happening in the world. So it's there is a resource, and it's all for free. That's uh, margaretwheatley.com, or you can get to it from the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Margaret Wheatley. She's the author of Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. Meg, we're talking about learning and about the collapse of cultures and where we are right now. And I would love for you, you know, we, a lot of us really feel that technology is going to get us out of this, that we're, we're so smart and our technology is so great and we're, we've just progressed so well, we've learned so much, we think we've learned so much. And uh, you talk about the hubris that we have of the myth of progress. And this is something that we 
we're holding on to, but you're saying it it may not work out the way we thought it would. So can you say something about the myth of progress? Well, the myth of progress, that is not my original term. There are many books written with that title. What we need to understand is that historically, the whole idea of progress only came into human thought about 300 years ago with the Industrial Revolution. During Sir Isaac Newton's great work, it was still cyclical, as it is in indigenous cultures, as it is in Greek and Roman culture, Hindu, Buddhism. All the great faiths have a sense of cycles. We believe we can invent the future and not pay attention to the past. That's just our damnation at this point. The belief in technology, I think... For a long time, people thought, well, yes, we're smart enough, we'll invent solutions, we'll get out of this mess. The current research, the findings of what social media has done to our children, not only to their brains, but also to their emotional well-being, to their sense of identity and self, what social media has done in the political arena is pretty obvious now. It is one of, I would say, one of the most destructive technologies to come into existence because it promised connection and instead it has led to increased levels of polarization, uh, conspiracy theories, and just the destruction of thinking throughout our society and world. So that's one thing. And then... The recent, I'm very focused these days on watching how we are not responding to these well-developed and quite appalling scientific reports from several sources, from the United Nations, from the American um, agencies, and from other scientists who are collecting all of the data. The inability or the blindness or the denial to take in the critical moment that we're in. I mean, some of these scientists have said, this is the time. We have maybe 12 years, maybe three years to implement the technology that is already present. This isn't about needing to invent new solutions. This has been something I've been very troubled by for many years, which is the solutions we needed were already here. What we're facing is a failure of political will. And to be even more depressing, uh, this is what always happens. The people, the leaders in power in every civilization work for their own benefit. There are always elites who ignore the demands and needs of everyone else and take all the wealth for themselves. And that's where we are. This belief in technology that will save us, it could have, and it didn't. And now we're just ignoring where we really are on this timeline because it's terrifying. It's really terrifying to read these reports and to just observe 
the changes in our own personal lives because, and in our children because of where technology has brought us in terms of social media and the Internet. I want to, I want to, there's a story that you tell or a person that you have met. And so this is giving us some hope. Well, I no, we're not going to call it hope, but giving us an activity we can do that we can move into. And this is something that was Dr. Stephanie Pace Marshall, who was president of the Illinois Math and Science Academy. And she faced a big problem, and you describe this in the book. It's so wonderful because I think it gives us a way of looking at learning, uh, looking at how we can learn and come together and and really tell the story and know the choices we could be making when knowing enough that we can make better choices. So can you, can you tell that story about... Um, Stephanie Pace Marshall and the 32 kids on the waiting list? Uh, Stephanie was the founder, visionary leader of the Illinois Math and Science Academy uh, outside of Chicago, which was the first residential public school for talented children. And they pioneered talented children primarily in science and math, but they pioneered all sorts of innovations in education. And then they encountered a situation in which they had mistakenly accepted 32 students who were on the waiting list, but instead had informed them that uh, you've been accepted. Well, this created huge trouble because they didn't have enough classroom space. They would need more beds. It was a residential school. They would need more faculty, they would need a lot of things that they didn't have. And the faculty divided between this is an opportunity versus this is a catastrophe waiting to be, (laughs) waiting to happen. Stephanie had someone go out, one of her staff people, and listen to the stories that people were saying, the conversations they were saying. And then she presented it as, a choice. Now, nobody knew, realized when they were stating all their fears or talking in the cafeteria with other faculty, nobody realized the part that they were playing in weaving one of these two stories. But one was filled with promise and one was filled with the end of the school, a really a sense of um, this would destroy them. And Stephanie, in naming the storylines that were most dominant in their personal conversations, and it was just these two, either we're going to make lemonade out of this or we're going to go down with, and uh, it'll be a disaster. Um, That was a leadership role of being able to name the stories that were captured by. Now, if I relate that to now, I think... What I am doing in my own work with leaders now is writing a new story about what leadership is possible, what is available. Yes, we are facing climate catastrophe. Yes, things are getting worse. 
yes, we are not likely to be the ones who suffer the most. It will be the poor in other countries and in our own country who suffer the most. But the story that I've created is an answer to who do we choose to be, that we can use our power and influence as leaders wherever we are, informal leaders, community leaders, parents, school leaders, formal corporate leaders, nonprofit leaders, all of us who have shown an interest in making a difference and who in the past have done great work as activists and leaders and really created good changes. Now, the story that I'm putting forward, and this is historical, there are always a few people who in a time of depravity raised the banner, I'm quoting Sir John Glove here, raised the banner of duty and service and understand that it's only through self-sacrifice that community can be maintained. So I am training leaders now to be warriors for the human spirit. I learned about warriorship being in the army. I learned about self-sacrifice and honor and duty just by hanging out with soldiers. Um, We as warriors for the human spirit are spiritual warriors. We're peaceful warriors. There are many ways this term warrior has been used over time that is not about aggression. I think, Meg, when you're talking about warriors, you've mentioned that their weapons are compassion and insight. That's right. That is from Joanna Macy's beautiful, lifelong work of bringing forward the prophecy of the Shambhala warriors who come forth at a time when all of life hangs by the frailest of threats. How... Weapons of mass destruction are used by the great powers. And this is a Tibetan prophecy, and all of the Tibetan teachers say, this is the time now, this is the time for the Shambhala warriors to come forth, and their weapons are only compassion and insight. Yes. So, you know, I think about these times, the gift, you know, when you're talking about uh, Stephanie Pace Marshall and her two stories, the firestorm story or the gift story. And the people that I hang out with, Meg, uh, we're talking about these times, the gift of these times is activism. I mean, people are, I've never been so active in community efforts. I mean, I just recently spoke at the city council uh, uh, meeting, and I uh, also am in contact and giving resources to people who have been elected in, in offices right here locally and also nationally. But, and it feels so good to be working with a group of people, not just by myself. And I think that's what you're talking about when you talk about warriors for the human spirit and and coming into these groups naturally and uh, self-organizing, so to speak. Yes, although I have a huge caution to offer. We have to be prepared to be more and more active, and we have to be even more prepared that our activism will not stop. The momentum, the dynamics, we're not going to change the fate 
of what is basically the world now. We're not willing to. So we're not, our activism has to be done because it's the right thing to do. We have to give voice. We have to try and wake up local leaders. But the die has already been cast. And we are now in the increasing um, reality of climate change and its consequences on society and all aspects of society. We'll talk about that more in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Margaret Weedley. She's the author of Who Do We Choose to Be? I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Meg Wheatley. She's the author of Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. And we're talking about the that we can't change the fate that we're in right now. And in, in doing that, um, Meg, I want to read a poem that you wrote. This is in your book, How Does the Raven Know? Entering Sacred World, a Meditative Memoir. And it's just full of just incredible, wonderful images and poetry. And I want to read this this poem because it really relates to what we're talking about. You write, I am not interested in being hopeful or optimistic or working diligently to reverse the patterned path of history we tread so reliably toward collapse. I am interested in being able to stay in the midst of this terrible travesty that degrades the human spirit or denies we have one. Caught in the balance beam of meaningful work and terrifying times, I want to walk steady in the world, learning what balance feels like, blessed by the active presence of companions in sacred world. So that's that poem. Really, uh, thank you so much for putting that, putting words to that. And that is what you're talking about. You're talking about standing steady, abiding, no matter what, even though there's travesty. So uh, t- tell us what that looks like for you. Well, thank you for reading that. You know, I I still like it quite a lot. It still matches <laughs> where I am. But it's always good to have one's writing recalled. One of the fundamental shifts we need to make as leaders, as citizens, as concerned people, is that we cannot stop the momentum, the dynamics of this pattern of history. We can't. Therefore, we still need to make a difference but we need to redefine what that difference is. And for me, the difference is being able to stay present and to stay available for people whose suffering is increasing. That's the work of Warriors for the Human Spirit. 
we work within a, as a vowed community, really. We're all very successful leaders and activists. But now we're changing our definition of what is good work, what is right work, rather than what is successful work. And right work is work that must be done no matter the external circumstances. And it's work that stands against the current dynamics and the tides of history. It's work where we really strive to embody what it means to be a good human being. We hold ourselves accountable for being present, for being good listeners, for not entering into every situation with the need to fix somebody or something in the situation, but instead to bear witness, to be present. And in that, we are reminding people, this is so important to me, we're reminding people of the better qualities of being human, which you don't find very easily these days as you go out in the world. So we have a great responsibility, and we take it quite seriously, but quite joyfully, of wanting to embody the best qualities of being human and make it possible for other people to remember or maybe if they're young for the first time, see what it means to be in the presence of someone who listens, someone who isn't trying to fix you, someone who has integrity, someone who has ethics, someone who understands the value of being together. And I have to say that one of our experiences is the frequent presence of joy. And for me, this has always puzzled me in the past, how people in terrible situations describe their experience as joyful. And now I know what they're talking about, which is they are experiencing a deep sense of communion, connection with what it means to be human. And that is always joyful, no matter what's going on in your external life. When you, when you say that, it reminds me of something else that you reported in your book. And this was uh, from the Dalai Lama when he asked a group of people uh, the causes of suffering. And I bring this up because uh, what you said about listening and about just being present with each other, really witnessing. and. People said to him, back to him, you know, well, the causes of suffering are, are racism or, or bad health or what, whatever. They came up with all of these reasons. And he said, no, actually, the causes of suffering is good people working together, failing to notice what is arising between them. And that, again, goes back to the noticing what is, noticing what is real, what is happening, and finding those little places where we start to go off into some direction that's not healthy. Do, do you have some observation about that, Meg? Well, his great wisdom applies. It's a definition of how we humans get into trouble everywhere, all the time, throughout history, and in our present moment as well. We fail to notice all of the trouble we cause each other, and we fail to deal with it in the present moment. So I could apply that again to 
where we are as a society, but it's also very powerful when you're dealing with a family situation or you're dealing with um, colleagues. If you can take time to stop and notice where are we, uh, what's happening here, what are we going to learn from this, then there's a possibility for growth and adaptation. But the deeper message here, and I want to go back to this because it's where I I stand out in my work as opposed to people who are doing the very fundamental work of bringing people together, circle practice, good listening, um, participative leadership, all those things that are still essential but have basically disappeared from just about everywhere. Um, what I'm asking leaders to do is to change their self-definition of shifting from being an effective actor in creating change, which is the old definition, that was my work for 40 years, um, how do we create change, how do we bring people together to create change, how do we bring people together in ways that honor them. That's all that participative leadership work, listening, circle practice, all of that. But what I'm asking now for just a few people, because it's always only just a few people, is to face the reality of what's happening and use their leadership to be present and defenders of people, of the human spirit, because that's what's just disappeared from view. We just don't want to notice that these are human, human beings, as Grace Lee Boggs defined it. Human, human beings. I just learned that uh, Sir Richard Branson of, of uh, Virgin Air and other businesses has a campaign called 100% Human. I could support that also. But what uh -huh. this means is as a, a leader as a person in your community to define your work now and to behave in ways that you embody the best qualities, non-aggression, non-fear, clarity, and clear seeing, that we embody those as we raise voices, but we're not raising our voice to create global change. We can still create very important local change, and that's where I'm focusing all leaders. But the essential identity that I'm holding is I'm going to stand up. I'm taking a stand for what supports life, whether it's people or planet. I'm taking a stand here. I give up needing it to work out well. So this is the place beyond hope and fear, which is just clarity about this is the right voice, this is the right work. And that, for me, is a, was a personal profound shift, and, and it's possible to become a person who's in the midst of all this tragedy and suffering and still offer something that people need, which is presence, which is companionship, consolation. It's a very different role for leaders. And meanwhile, as leaders, we do what we can as Theodore Roosevelt said, we do what we can with what we have where we are. We do try and create more harmonious, effective work organizations 
that's why I call them islands of sanity because they're set apart from the general norm, the general trend of just being despicable to, to people and just discounting people and our humanity. I'm reminded that about how grass or different seeds kind of pop up at the same time in diverse locations. And I, I recently did an interview with um, Skylar Wilson, Jennifer Barrett Listug, and Matthew Fox, and they had put together a book called Order of the Sacred Earth, an Intergenerational Vision of Love and Action. They're really talking about the same thing, about a dedication to what you're talking about, being going back to our, our true human nature, which is generosity, which is loving, which is compassionate, and how we can do that together. That that's really reminds me of the way that there are people working together to do that and focusing on that. And it may be a small number, but it's necessary at this time, I think, is what you're saying, is that we need to also work on ourselves to know who we are and how we're perceiving things, to notice our own biases and filters and habits and triggers. So, so working out with others is also working on ourselves. Yes, um, I'm glad you raised this point, Justine, because for me, the task is to work on ourselves so we get ourselves out of the way. I want less and less of me and my wants and needs in a situation because without the wants and needs, I can see more clearly what is the work that needs doing here. So our current very overly narcissistic self devoted to self-culture, says, yes, we have to work on ourselves first. And my experience with the warrior training and with my own practice and development is I am working on myself so I can get the self to not be a factor in how I see things, how I react to things, because I want to be of service. So I want to put the service ahead of working on the self. That's the reason we work on ourselves. Yes, we work on ourselves. I want to remind our listeners, I'm talking with Margaret Wheatley. She's the author of Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Margaret Wheatley. She's the author of Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. Meg, when you're talking about this collapse and what's going on and what we need to do and work on ourselves and be together, but that the fate is there and the destiny is there, what do we do? We despair. We go into despair. It's so easy to say, pull up the covers up over our heads and just say, oh, well, what, what's the use if it's going to all collapse anyway? So how do we deal with despair? Well, I think because this is a constant challenge for all of us as we're willing to face the reality of what's happening and what's unfolding, one of the things we need is a, a clear understanding of once I face the despair, who do I choose to be? We need to, we could withdraw, we could hide behind a nine foot home television screen, which some people are doing. We could get really despairing and several activists have committed suicide. Well, I want to be present and supportive and helpful as best I can for other people. That's my own vow, um, to be the presence of compassion and insight for other people. And it's hard work. So one of the things that helps with all of this is to actually understand what you're doing. What are you faithful to? What are what what is the meaning of life to you personally? If your life has just been focused on self and pleasure, which I doubt for most of your listeners here, but then you're going to withdraw. But if your life has been focused on service and wanting to support people and wanting to create change, now there's still incredibly important work to be done. I mean, what would happen if we all ran away with our despair? So for me personally... I allow my despair, and I know it's just a stage I go through on a, I would say, four times a week. It's increasing. (laughs) But I allow it as part of my process because the other side of despair is my commitment to, I choose to be a warrior for the human spirit. I choose to be able to stay and serve other people. I've given up my needs for, you know, a good life, a good activism, a life of activism, as I formally had defined it in my earlier work. And now I'm just really happy. I feel happier now, more serene than any time in my life, because I realize I define my function as just being there for people. And working with my mind, I have a strong meditative practice. We teach that in the warrior training. Knowing enough about my own triggers and my own personality so that I can trust myself more and more to not get in the way and to really be there for somebody else. And it's a beautiful practice. And I'm finding this is true not just for me, but for those who are really devoted and committed to warrior training. The issue of how do you stay on the path, for me, it was answered years ago when I started working with nuns, Catholic nuns, all of whom live a consecrated life. And part of a consecrated life is you take a vow. And so we created a vow in the warrior training 
which is a quote from the great Buddhist teacher Chogyam Trungpa, who said, I cannot change the way the world is, but by opening to the world as it is, I may discover that gentleness, decency, and bravery are available, not only to me, but to all human beings. The hardest part of that vow is I cannot change the way the world is. That's acceptance. It's not resignation. It's acceptance because the second line is, but by opening to the world as it is, I may discover gentleness, decency, and bravery. So the path to creating the qualities by which we can act well and wisely, the path is acceptance of what is, seeing as clearly as possible what is happening, and understanding that the more I'm willing to stand in this open mind and see what's going on, the more I will experience the very qualities I desire. I'll be gentle rather than aggressive. I'll be decent, which means I'm trustworthy. I trust myself and others can trust me. And I'll be brave, but I'll know what to do. And this vow has served us now, I'm speaking about 150 people who've been living with this vow now for a few years. It's powerful. It keeps you on the path. Um, Daido Lori, a great Zen Roshi who's since passed on, said at one point, you know, we don't need hope. We have vow. And I love that expression because we're not motivated by hope for outcomes. We're motivated by the clarity that this is who I want to be at this time for this world. I, I can't deny the world, and but the more I open to it, the more I can be of service. And one important component of this is the, the need for community, the need for to know that there are other people there for me that I can call upon for comfort, for laughter, for good advice, but the need for community is paramount here as well. And that's what I see um, not necessarily being focused on by by other... Uh, I learned this from working with Catholic nuns again. You have each other. And um, I also learned this in the Army when General Sullivan said, Meg, here's a quote that once you understand it, you will understand what it means to be a soldier. It was a quote from General Sherman that he wrote at the end of the Civil War to General Grant explaining why they won. And General Sherman said, I always knew you thought of me and that if I got in a tight place, you would come if alive. And that's the strength of community. We need to have people we can call upon so that when we get in a tight place, we just say, I need you, and the person shows up. Uh, that's been true right. in the military, and it's now true in within my own community and many others. But we can't discount the fact that we really need to find the few others who really share our view, who share our practice, and hopefully are living with the same level of openness to what's going on. And, and desiring the same qualities in themselves so they can be of service. 
I'm reminded of what the Dalai Lama said once uh, when we were with him in Costa Rica years ago. He said, uh, I do my work not because I know the outcome, because I know, you know how it's going to turn out. I, I get up each morning and I do what is right and good for me to do. That was it. And that's that's the same as Vaclav Havel has said. It's doing that work because it's the work to do somehow. And I, I'm also reminded of Teddy Roosevelt, when and you you also quote him in the book. He says, "Do what you can with what you have where you are," and that's really good advice uh, to stay the course, to abide, and and hopefully join hands with others as you do it. And I know that you talk about not avoiding our emotions. You talk about feeling the despair and then going all the way through that, not to discard it, but to be with it and to know it feels fully human to feel despair. Then you know that you're really feeling your humanness. That's right. And, I mean, you know, we don't need to do anything with our emotions except expect very strong emotions these days of grief and loss and frustration and rage. That's my list. And despair. But they don't define us. They occur. And then if we don't attach an ongoing storyline to them, they pass through us. And that's the experience that I have and I teach is to just notice oh, there is sadness here. Oh, there is despair here. Not even to say I'm feeling sad because this is quite different. It's I'm just noticing there is an emotion and I'm just allowing it, but I'm not letting it define me. So, And what we say to all the warriors is we are always sad. Sadness is just a way of being with life these days because we know what, could be different. We know what human beings are capable of in our better qualities. We know, maybe hopefully have had experience of what it means to be truly present for somebody. So of course we're going to feel sad every moment by just observing how completely screwed up we've become as a culture. But it is always that way. I just want to end by giving the full Vaslav Havel quote because I use it a lot. He was talking about hope. And he said, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And for me, I'm living with the certainty that I know who I have chosen to be. I'm working with myself. I'm working in community. I'm exploring many ways to be of service um, for what is present already and for what is to come. And that's the source, I'm going to say it once more, I am happier now than I've ever been in my work and life. Strange to say, but true. Thank you so much, Meg, for being part of New Dimensions today. I've been speaking with Dr. Meg Wheatley. She's the author of Who Do We Choose to Be? Facing Reality, Claiming Leadership, Restoring Sanity. And if you want to know more about her work, go to the website that's full of resources and videos and all sorts of free things that will be of help, margaretwheatley.com. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3665. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.